Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. John Morton today. But first, we always check in on current news. And Harlan, you promised that you were going to give us an update on the new trial on the you know, anti-obesity medications, anti-diabetes medications. So first, maybe just start off and explain to our listeners what GLP-1 receptor agonists are and why we should care. Yeah, I think probably almost everyone's heard about these just because they talk about Ozempic and Wegovi and, and you know, people from Mujaro and now uh, Zebbound, <laughs> which is the new yeah. label, the new name for terzepatide, which has been called Mujaro that comes out of Lilly that's just now been approved for the treatment of obesity. Th- these are agonists of a, of a glucagon-like peptide one, GLP-1. You know, this sounds all sort of uh, got a nerd out on the on the biochemistry here, but but these are basically uh, hormones that have metabolic pathways associated with glucose m- metabolism and energy homeostasis, and they maybe affect inflammation. The, the truth is, they've been around for a while, and they've been used to treat people with diabetes. They 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 have a modest effect on on what the hemoglobin A one C. That's the lab test that sort of gives you a net of you know, what your glucose levels have been over the last couple months. And, uh, you know, it's what people track when they're trying to to control glucose levels and diabetes and so forth. And, you know, over the course of time, it was discovered that people who are getting these meds were losing weight. And, you know, that wasn't the original idea. You know, right. it wasn't, they, they weren't really developed with that thought in mind. And now that, you know, this things have gone bonkers. And we on this, on the podcast have talked often about how these meds are changing the face of American medicine. Obesity is a big problem in America. Uh, so many Americans suffer from it. It's increasing year on, year out. And uh, finally, we have medications that are not only effective in helping people lose weight, but seemingly can help reduce their risk. So so tell us now, like, what is the accumulating evidence about those real outcomes, not just obesity and not just diabetes, as though that's not enough, but what are we learning? Well, just to review again, you know, we had a, a, a wide range of drugs to treat diabetes, and there began to be some concern that even though they were successful at lowering glucose levels, they might have been increasing cardiovascular risk, paradoxically. And so the FDA came in and said, if there are any new diabetes drugs, you have to do what they called cardiovascular outcomes trials. You had to do clinical trials to ensure the safety of these drugs. Now, you can imagine how hard that was to enroll people, because you're enrolling people to show safety, not benefit. But but they were able to do these large trials to show that at least these were safe. And, and in fact, these drugs like the, the GLP-1 agonists actually reduced risk. And, and that, that was out of proportion to the benefit that they had on, on blood glucose. And so for a while, we've known that these drugs, when used in people with diabetes, they could reduce risk. And then, you know, a lot of people with obesity and diabetes end up being treated, and they also had this risk reduction. But the question was, what if you started treating people with obesity who didn't have diabetes? It was this really an effect that was singularly about benefit in those who have diabetes. So, so now we have the drum roll, please. What, tell, tell me what we learned. This trial, which was done by Nova Nordisk, the, the maker of semaglutide, which is the drug that's in Ozempic and Wegovi, you know, it, it enrolled uh, thousands and thousands of people in a study and randomized them. These are people with obesity and existing, they're high-risk people and existing cardiovascular disease. 
And they said, what if we treat the obesity? What's it do for cardiovascular risk? Blah, 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 blah. We've known this for a while, by the way, because of the SEC announcement, but the, the trial itself added in a lot more information. There was a 20% reduction in risk. And uh, this was, you know, over about three years of treatment, the absolute difference between the groups made it so that you had to treat about 67 people to, to avert one event. Uh, but that's not bad in, in the scale of things when you look at it. The 20% reduction is similar to what you would see with something like statins. And what was notable, Howie, uh, was that these were very well-treated people, meaning that they had heart disease and they were on statins. Their blood pressure was good. Their, their LDL, the bad cholesterol, was low. I mean, th this was a group who was about as low a risk as you could make them with conventional medications. And we still got a 20% on top of really good preventive care. So lots of people were excited about this. Now, one of the things that was in the trial, which surprised me at least a little bit, is that the weight loss seen in this group was less than we've seen in the previous trials. Has there been any discussion about why that's the case? Is, is there something different in this population? Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we've never, we haven't had any head-to-heads yet between the different types and the trials do have differences in, in population. You know, maybe this population a little bit older than some of the other populations, maybe the, you know, levels of obesity. Interestingly, you know, they had people from 20, BMI of 27, yep. you know, to 30. So they, they even had people with a BMI under 30. Now it, we, the definition of obesity really starts at a BMI of, of 30. So they're going a little bit lower and they're saying if we treat people in that early stage, does that make a difference? I'm not sure exactly uh, why, but, you know, there still was, you know, almost, I think, a 10% reduction in weight. People, people did lose weight. And I, one of the interesting things, by the way, Howie, about this was, you know, the, one of the questions might be, how about people who are just sort of over the borderline that the lower end of the BMIs in this trial, did they get experience as much benefit as the I other? I think they had more, right? Is that, isn't that the case? If anything, yeah. they had more, right? Yeah, so, I was shocked. So, so probably there's not a lot of difference among the groups, but they definitely didn't have less. And uh, so it suggested maybe, you know, treating that those who are just barely into the obesity category what was beneficial, we should be treating early, not waiting until people are. Yeah, and that's one of the questions that I'm going to be asking uh, Dr. Morton when we talk to him uh, today is sort of like, when do we treat obesity? Do we wait until it gets really bad or do we treat it a little bit earlier? And this trial would suggest earlier is certainly not worse. I, it is interesting that this week, time to this trial's release, the AMA comes out with a statement saying that they now advocate for insurance to cover obesity medications on an evidence basis. Uh, I don't remember the exact words, but basically uh, using an evidence-based approach. And my question for you is, based on what limited information we have and from big trials, what would you say the recommendations are right now for what categories do we have strong enough evidence to say we should be treating uh, if the patient wants it? Well, look, I, I think we need to move from this idea that this is about sort of a cosmetic, you know, approach, you know, that this really yeah. represents an improvement of health and health promotion. And, and look, we've got long-term evidence about the safety of the drug has been used in people with diabetes for a long time. The effectiveness in treating obesity is, is really clear. And now we have evidence, not only does it 
do things like lower blood pressure and improve lipids and, and slow the progression to diabetes among those who don't yet have diabetes or even reverse diabetes in people who do, we have actual evidence in high-risk individuals that it reduces the number of heart attacks and, car and cardiovascular deaths and so forth so that it's, it's reducing risk. I think we need to start thinking about these like we do statins and, and you know, it's one of the strongest evidence bases there are on, for preventive medications. As you know, CMS doesn't cover this right now because they don't I cover know. weight loss drugs. And most of the insurance companies aren't covering it because employers get to make those decisions for the most part or, or whatever plan you buy can or does not have to include it because it's not an Obamacare required condition. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things is in healthcare, we spend a lot of money on things that we don't have good evidence about. We're not sure about and we sort right. of allow that. And then there are things now that come up like this where, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the evidence is quite strong that it's quite beneficial. Now, you need to know some people, you know, take this, can't tolerate it. And it was about 8% of people, 16% discontinued because of side effects in the treatment yes. group, but 8% discontinued in the placebo group. So you, you right. have to subtract that, but you get like one in 12, you know, we're unable to continue for the, this was 40 months, a pretty long trial. But, but most people did tolerate it and experience the benefit. And I just don't think the cost, you know, should be a reason that, that people can't take it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add just one more thing. I think as a society, we just need to come to some decisions about how and what we, what we pay for. What is the standard for paying for these things? You know, what you just said also about uh, discontinuation, turns out within the clinical trials, the numbers are consistently, like you described, very low. In the real world, when people start up semaglutide, they quit 50 to 65% of the time within, I think, a year, a year and a half. So that's a disconnect between it. A lot of people think it's because when you're in a trial, you're not having to pay anything for it. Uh, you're involved in monitoring. You may feel shame if you discontinue it. So we've got to also figure out how do we take care of all those people that aren't really going to continue taking it for one reason or another and make it accessible to as many people as possible. And we're trying to launch some studies, we're working with Anya Yastrobroff, and and uh, we're trying to launch some studies of real world experience with this, trying to understand yeah. how do you optimize this treatment? How do you get the best? We're, we're going to keep treatment. coming back to this, that's for sure. So let's get on to our guest. Dr. John Morton is a professor of bariatric and minimally invasive surgery at Yale. He serves as vice chair for quality and is the system lead for surgical quality and bariatric services in the Yale New Haven Health System. Before coming to Yale, he held similar leadership positions at Stanford Medical School. Dr. Morton is board certified in surgery as well as obesity medicine. He has written numerous book chapters, articles, and research papers, and is an editorial board member of many renowned health and obesity-related publications. In addition to being honored for his teaching and scholarship, he has continued to fill roles of leadership at the national level. He obtains his bachelor's master's and medical degree from Tulane University, and he received a master's in health administration from the University of Washington, where he was a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar. And we have been actively and excited about talking to you for many months because one of the themes of this podcast has been obesity, obesity treatment, obesity as a disease, and so on. And you are an obesity surgeon, and you have basically been an active surgeon from the beginning of the obesity surgery revolution to now. 
But what I want, if you could, to start off with is just to give our listeners a sense about the types of surgeries that have been done and what is the current state of the art. Well, thank you to you both for having me today. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to learn more about the podcast, and it's an honor and privilege to be with you guys today. So bariatric surgery and its modern iteration started roughly about 20 years ago. What sparked it is really the fact that we were able to do it laparoscopically with small incisions. I'll never forget, you know, as a young surgery resident reading a book that said laparoscopy will take over all of general surgery. The only exception will be obesity. I remember reading that. And of course, that's where the uh, sweet spot was because in the old days when they did these procedures, just the incision alone was quite morbid, 50% hernia rates and infection rates. But since then, we do it laparoscopically. There is now an accreditation model for all the bariatric surgery over 900 accredited centers. And more importantly, we teach people how to do these procedures. There's a, a roughly about three main procedures. By far the most common currently is something called a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. That's followed by the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and lastly, the duodenal switch. There's different kind of variations with each of them, but I can briefly describe the three if you'd like. Yeah, so, please. Well, we'll start first with the sleeve because that's the easiest one to conceptualize. What we do is we take the stomach that's roughly about the size of a football and make it into a long skinny tube, roughly about the size of a banana. And that accomplishes a few goals. One is it is restrictive, but a big change in the last 20 years is an understanding that bariatric surgery is not just restriction. It's actually metabolic changes, physiologic changes. So with that resection of the stomach, we remove the seat of hunger, uh, the fundus where you have ghrelin being made. The other interesting thing is that you get food going through that sleeve quickly and it reaches the distal intestine fast. And what that does is it turns on GLP-1 that's been in the news. We were, we were GLP-1 agonists before GLP-1 was cool. So in bariatric surgery, we've also raised GLP-1, but there's a lot of other things that happen. Energy expenditure goes up. Some of the other um, hormones like PYY are altered in, in favor of losing weight. So a lot of those things happen. Now with the bypass, it is a little bit different. It's an older operation. And that operation has been around since probably about uh, almost 60 years now. And what we do with the bypass is we make a small stomach, roughly about the size of an egg, divide the intestine in half, bring one half up to the small stomach, and then reconnect it. It too can provide excellent weight loss, but it is really very effective for diabetes and extremely effective for acid reflux. The last procedure is a duodenal switch. Duodenal switch is a, a much, much rare procedure, probably on the order of maybe less than 1% nationwide. And what it entails is bypassing the majority of the small intestine. Only about 300 centimeters are left for uh, absorption of nutrients. So that is a, a higher risk, higher reward type of procedure. And we really confine it for patients with advanced stage of disease, which has been another big advance for us in bariatric surgery. We really look to tailor therapy to stage of disease and obesity is a disease as declared by the AMA about 10 years ago. So those are the three main ones. Can you speak a little bit to 
two points that are related. One is what are the obstacles to doing randomized trials between the different types of surgeries that are being done? I know there have been some small trials, but bigger one. And secondly, about two thirds of people that go on GLP-1s, maybe a little less, don't last more than like a year. With surgery, you obviously can't you know, give up on the surgery. Once you've had it, you've had it. But I'm just curious, like what percent of patients at a year are satisfied with how their surgery has worked out? Yeah, we've got a a lot of data about that. You know, the overwhelming majority are happy with their surgery. In fact, the most common comment I get from patients is, why didn't I do this sooner? Mm -hmm. So we're we're talking in excess of, uh, you know, 90%, you know, for, for that. So it's one of the things that are I like to say it's a happy specialty. I mean, that's one of the reasons I enjoy it is that I have a lot of happy patients. I also don't have a very high complication rate at all. You know, our nationwide mortality rates about one out of a thousand, which is comparable to hip or knee replacement. My personal experience, and I'm always a little uh, reluctant to bring up, but I've done about 6,000 cases without mortality. That's what I want to do until I retire. So you have, it can be pretty safe and it's definitely, um, you know, effective. Um, and most people are, are very much um, happy with it at one year. Now, if we take it out a little bit further, three, five, 10 years, the patients who aren't as happy are the ones who've regained their weight. And that mm-hmm. frankly is an Achilles heel for, for bariatric surgery. We have excellent one-year data. And with some trials, we've been able to follow it out even 20 years, mostly population-based stuff out of Sweden and Canada. But one thing that, you know, would enhance our field a lot is better ability to track patients. And I think this is where telehealth in the broadest sense would help us out. Things like remote monitoring. I've lobbied the insurance companies for coverage over the years, and I have good relationships with them. But one of the things I've always advocated for them is that they need to get smart scales for these patients. The act of weighing yourself is actually a trait associated with keeping your weight down. We used to think that weighing yourself a lot would actually be, you know, detrimental to the um, the well-being of a patient, but it's opposite. It actually helps keep you on track. You know, we do provide glucometers for diabetics. Why aren't we giving scales to some of these uh, bariatric surgery patients? The last point about that is it's easier to treat 10 to 15 pounds of weight gain than it is 100. So, mm. a, you know, a stitch in time will save nine. Ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if we know about it sooner rather than later, we can help. One of the uh, issues that's come up with the GLP-1 receptor agonists is the concerns about equity. And, you know, who's going to get them, and especially with the cost. Are you facing any of that in surgery? I mean, who's actually getting the bariatric surgery? And are we really reaching all the populations who might benefit from it? It's a great question. And initially, most of the people that were getting bariatric surgery were well-insured and white. But that has changed over the last few years. You know, one of the big impediments was, frankly, coverage. I became president of my society, I think, in no small part because I advocated for coverage and got coverage for a lot of our um, our, our surgeons. And one of the places that we lacked uh, coverage nationwide was Medicaid. You know, about, uh, I guess, 10, 15 years ago, only about half of the country had coverage with Medicaid. Now, proud to say 49 of 50 states have coverage, Montana being the only exception. And for a while, it was because they didn't have a bariatric surgeon. Hmm. But we're getting better coverage. And there was a recent article, and I did the commentary on it. We've actually seen an uptake in uh, doing more and more of these cases with underrepresented minorities. 
Um, so it is it is getting better. I think, you know, in many ways, what's going on with GLP-1s now is what happened with us 20 years ago in bariatric surgery. Mark Twain said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And that's, I think, is what we're seeing. Uh, what happened about 20 years ago for us, uh, many of the procedures we were doing were cash. You know, they were not covered by insurance. Um, you're seeing a lot of that happening right now with the GLP-1s. You're also seeing some backlash, you know, which has happened with bariatric surgery as well. Um, everyone, everybody wants to pull on Superman's cape. You know, when you see something wildly successful, inevitably, there will be some sort of backlash. But I think um, in terms of equity, what will make it um, more equal is coverage. And the biggest impediment right now to coverage for the GLP-1s is this um, mandate in CMS saying they won't cover any obesity medication at all. And it's a blanket refusal to coverage. And it's an out and out discriminatory practice, frankly. You know, this is something that, why is this disease singled out amongst others? I, I hear, you know, it's too prevalent. You know, there's, you know, 40% of this country is obese or overweight. Well, how many of this country is pre-diabetic or diabetic? There's no hesitation to cover them. So I think we have to get over the stigma for one reason, so we can improve the health and welfare of our population. Because there's a lot of downstream complications of carrying weight, cancer, COVID, cardiac disease. Why not? And we're paying for it already. We're paying for all the complications. Why not pay for it up front so we can prevent some of these problems later? You, you mentioned early on the distinction between the three different types of dominant surgeries and that the sleeve gastrectomy is the dominant one, but it's also has a lower likelihood of reducing or lower loss of weight compared with the Ruan Y, which is a much more complicated surgery. Can, can you explain why that has become so dominant given that it may be less effective? Does it have anything to do with adverse events or... or outcomes otherwise? It's a great question. And I think it's it's coming from both sides, both, you know, from the surgeon and from the patient. So from a patient standpoint, you know, over the last 20 years, one thing I've learned from patients is they want less invasive, not more invasive. They want simpler, not more complicated. So patients will come in, first of all, asking for the sleeve. Now, there's some strong, in my opinion, contraindications for doing a sleeve. If you have pathologic reflux, you know, where the lining of your esophagus gets burned uh, because of the, of the reflux, or if you have very advanced diabetes. So in that case, you know, I, I will recommend the bypass. Now, patients will sometimes push back, but I will, you know, do my best to educate. And if at the end of the day, they still want the sleeve, I will provide it as long as there's no harm involved in it. Main reason being is that a therapy is better than no therapy at all. And there's a clear and present danger to doing nothing for these patients because it will end up getting worse. The other side of the coin is why are surgeons doing it more? Frankly, it's a more straightforward procedure. It takes, um, you know, I did three yesterday. It takes me about 40 minutes to do the procedure. You know, it's a very quick procedure. Patients are in the hospital for a day or two. Um, I think there is a, certainly some advantage in, in being able, the simplicity of it. As far as adverse events, it really, once you get past the first week, pretty rare to have problems with the sleeve. The only exception can be reflux. And it's a, mm -hmm. it's a very pathologic reflux. It happens in maybe 5 to 15% of patients. And in those patients, the traditional PPIs and the anti-acid medications do not work. So then they will require conversion to a bypass. Wow. One thing that we're doing at Yale is trying to figure out why. 
And one of the things that we do is we scope our patients prior to surgery. And one thing we've learned is that the people who are at most risk to having reflux after surgery are the ones who have reflux before surgery. So it's simple that way. And when you do it that way, you don't have uh, that degree of, of, um, of reflux afterwards. But my hope and belief is that we can take the sleeve, which is common, safe, straightforward to do, and augment the results, augment the results with the GLP-1s. I hearken back to, um, trying to remember the surgeon's name, uh, Bernie Fisher uh, from University of Pittsburgh, who did the famous trials of the lumpectomy versus mastectomy, mm -hmm. lumpectomy yes. plus adjuvant therapy. And as you guys know, the mastectomy was a mainstay for breast cancer in the 70s, Decades. in the 80s, and it was very disfiguring. And he figured out if you augment the lumpectomy with uh, neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy, you can get equivalent results. The other big insight he had was that the disease is not local, it's systemic. Another insight for us in, in, in bariatric surgery. So that's why I'm a firm belief of that, you know, if we use these drugs before and after surgery, we're gonna need to get equivalent results with, uh, uh, with the sleeve and the bypass. Again, it calls for study to figure out if that's actually the case. Last point is about the bypass. There can be some complications later. Um, the big ones are ulcers, but also bowel obstructions, and they can occur at any time. I think you guys may be aware of uh, Lisa Marie Presley's demise, mm. and uh, it was from a bowel obstruction. Now, her particular procedure was a duodenal switch. It was not a gastric bypass. But what she died of was the fact there was a small bowel obstruction that went unrecognized. And unfortunately, she was on opiates, uh, which can sometimes mask the pain associated with the bowel obstruction. But again, that can happen at any time. And that's something that simply doesn't happen with the sleeve. Last question from me, at least. Harlan has taught me to use the term class three obesity as opposed to morbid obesity. But in the early years of obesity surgery, we were only doing these surgeries on the most obese individuals. Those with the most severe levels of obesity. Right, right. With the highest BMIs, more than 35 or 40 in, in many cases. Is your recommendation now, if somebody is already a BMI of 30 or 35, is it better for those people to be treated earlier, later? Is it irrelevant and you really just have to look at the whole picture? What, what is the recommendation now? Uh, I always think it's better to treat early stage disease than late stage disease. There's no question about that. You know, our indications are BMI over 40 or BMI over 35 with a medical problem. It was that way for the last 30 years. Uh, about a year ago, we created new guidelines based on evidence, and the guidelines now advocate for BMI 30 to 35 if you're diabetic. Right. And we know diabetes is such a pernicious uh, disease with complications that it makes sense to intervene sooner rather than later with some of those patients. And I, I do think, um, you know, the highest risk of recurrence is with higher BMIs. The best results are with lower BMIs. So it's a no-brainer that patients should come in sooner rather than later. And now with the new drugs, I think it's a great thing uh, that they're able to have, you know, alternative therapies. If the drugs don't work or they can't tolerate them, and, and there is a subset of those, there's always bariatric surgery in your corner. It's similar to what we've seen, you know, with uh, heart surgery and, you know, the, the high um, standard that we have in cardiology now. And uh, certainly there have been other examples, but I think they're complementary. They're all in the same continuum. And as a bariatric surgeon, I welcome the GLP-1s because I care about my patients. And if you have therapy that works, you're going to be happy for that. 
and we treat about 1% of the affected population. There's mm-hmm. a lot of folks out there that need help. Well, I want to thank you. I want to say you guys were really out in front on this idea that, that you know, this isn't about losing weight, but it's about health. It's not about lack of willpower or failure when people get surgery. It's about treating their condition in the same way it would be treating their, their diabetes or their hypertension. You know, it's a, it, if they've got advanced disease, you, know, you, you guys were way out in front of that, that framing, I think, you know, in terms of thinking about this. And, and then, of course, I think on the medicine side, now there's still a lot of education needs to take place because there's still a lot of stigma bias and even suggesting that, you know, why can't you just do it on your own? And, and the truth is for, for many people, the way they're wired, the way, what, the kind of environment they live in, you, you know, it, it, they're just not going to get there. And that's not a failure that, you know, they need to try other strategies. And, you know, I just want to give credit to you guys and the surgeons in particular, because I think you guys are way out in front on this in terms of thinking that there required an intervention and that that wasn't a failure. That's a treatment. And, you know, uh, anyway, I wanted to salute you for that, because I think and thinking about it in a pluripotent way, the, the nutrition, the activity, the you know, you weren't just going, let's just do the procedure, but you had a whole behavioral modification. No, we did have a comprehensive approach and it was based on experience because in the 80s and 90s, that's what they used to do, Harlan. They would just operate and then they wonder why things didn't work. I think the one study that really exemplified how much of uh, this is physiology, not psychology, is the biggest loser study by Kevin Hall. You know, if you ever saw the show, you know, people really wanted to lose weight. You know, you have to be very motivated to get up on national TV and be humiliated because that's what the show was about. Every single one of those patients regained their weight. And it wasn't because they lacked motivation. It was because they could not overcome their physiology. And he, he looked at, you know, the hunger hormone, the satiety hormones. They were permanently altered by the dieting. They went up to higher levels for uh, hunger, lower levels for satiety. And that happens each time you diet. And so they have to overcome that. There was only one patient following that, uh, uh, the Biggest Loser study that lost weight. And that was someone who had bariatric surgery. So this is obviously pre-GLP-1 era, but it just goes to show you, and I'm glad you brought up the point, it's about physiology, not psychology. We really appreciate you joining us today and, and really appreciate the work that you've done in this field. Yeah. We're, and John, thanks so much. And it feels so fortunate that you're here with us at Yale. So thanks for joining us too. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Well, that was a great interview. I'm so glad we had John Morton on today. Yeah. And it was fun for us to sort of front load the episode talking about the new semaglutide trial and the challenges of GLP-1s, and then to really dive in deep with somebody who's an expert on the surgical treatment of obesity and the holistic treatment of obesity. So, you know, I appreciate that we were able to do that all together. Yeah, we kind of reorganized again today. So everyone, you've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how'd we do to give us your feedback, keep the conversation going. You can email us at health.veritas at yale.edu or continue to find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Again, you can email us. You can also uh, reach out to us where I am the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out. Uh, via the email or look at our website at som.yale.edu slash emba. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Outstanding week in, week out. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.